you know, he doesn't want to cut a pound. His body won't let him cut a pound. Well, then you better win the tournament, okay? That's BS. That's bull crap. He's got some, he's got some big balls, man. You zip your lip, you shut your mouth, and you open your ears. That's how you win. That's how you get better. Win, you live, lose, you die. Screw it, let's do it live. Brian Muir joining us once again on the podcast. I'm sure yeah. you're you're uh, you're relaxed, rested from your big long trip. Trip? I am. Trip. Big long trip back in, back in the states. So we haven't actually even talked about this. We spent most of our first offline conversation talking about uh, your inability to pay debts, but let's not talk about that. Let's just talk about. Well, let's talk about let's talk about Bali. Let's talk about a little bit about Bali because I mean I don't think a lot of people have been there, and I think it'd probably be nice for people to hear a little bit about it. All right. Uh, well, Bali is indeed Indonesia. I'm sure you didn't know that, but um, I was expecting basically Hawaii, just in a different part of the world with different food, different language, different people. And it was kind of for the most part, um, but it was pretty uh, surprisingly and disappointingly. It was kind of dirty. Um, dirty I guess like, you're gonna get that. You're gonna get that in Southeast Asia. You're gonna get that in Southeast Asia, but you're saying like dirty, like we. But even the, above that, so I'm, I'm in the water. You know, I'm ready to catch some waves. I I don't know if you knew this about me, but I, I tend to surf a little bit. Um, there's a volcano in the background. Perfect scenery. Go to catch a wave and put my hand through like just a, I don't know, maybe 15 like plastic bags around me and paddling through garbage. and It was just kind of gross. So the first, my first impression with Bali beaches was not the best. Um, so it was kind of disappointing. Yeah, to travel 24, 26 hours to get there. Uh, and just to be surrounded by that stuff. But we uh, all ended well. We we found another couple beaches that were a little better off. I think we ended up at really like the first beach we went to was, was the tourist beach. So that probably had a lot to do with it. Wait, so the tourist beach was, was disgusting and yet the non-tourist beach was a, a little bit more um, pristine? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'd call it a non-tourist beach, but, like, the main tourist beach was, was pretty gross. That's really disappointing. I mean, I, I feel like... Yeah, I was shocked. I was shocked. I kind of like that. I like two things. I like that you had a terrible trip. That makes me happy. Well, the trip ended up great. Yeah. But the uh, beginning of it, the, the entrance was a little rough. No, but I, I do appreciate that you're being honest about it. I think people, when they spend a lot of money and time... And planning and resources on a trip, I mean, there's two things that happen. Like, you either build up the expectations, which obviously you'll never meet these, like, huge expectations for your trip. So it's a classic letdown. Or, and you're, but the second aspect of that is because you did that and because you pumped it up to your friends when you come back, you're sort of maybe, I don't know, dishonest a little bit about kind of your experiences. Not you, I'm saying traveler being the, uh, right. the, the broad you. And, like, People ask, you know, obviously you've done a little bit of traveling, both of us, and people ask, like, how do you have a good time? It's like, I come in expecting nothing and trying to romanticize nothing because you're just going to let yourself down. Like, if you come into India and say, this is going to be a spiritual awakening, you're going to be looking for it around every corner, and it's just going to be consistent letdown. But if you go there with just treating it like you're in Chicago, but you just a dirtier version, then you'll be surprised by the humanity. You'll be surprised by everything that goes on. And I talked to a bunch of people. That's, you know, that's why Bali was on my list because everybody I talked to was like, Bali is unbelievable. It was like, there were, there were parts of it that were just sick, you know, like everything you're looking for, they had it for the most part in some of the spots, but it took a while to like grind it out and find out, you know, where those spots were. And I talked to a couple of people and, I mean, I feel like I could put together a pretty good trip to Bali now after kind of trial and error through it, but yeah, I don't know. I felt like some of the people I talked to could have done a better job of, like, stay away from here, go here. One of those guys is Brandon Buckley, by the way, so if he's listening, uh, he owes me something. Maybe some sprints. Why did he completely let you down? No, he, I, 
No, not at all. It, it wasn't his responsibility or anything, but he might not have gone to, there was one beach, it was called Tuta Beach, and it was awful. So he, maybe he didn't even go there, so he couldn't speak to steer right. from that, that spot. But So, whatever, first two days were a little rough. Uh, after that, we found some beaches that were down south that you had to kind of take a ride to, and, and that was pretty much everything you expected to be. Big waves, you know, good good food. I mean, every, everything that I was looking for finally found it. It just took a couple of days to get there. So with six days only over there, it was a little uh, – I had to kind of speed up the process a little bit towards the end of it. All in all, good trip. Not what I was expecting. I thought Thailand was actually much better. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's your, that's your, native, that's your native land. That's my native land. And it's been, I haven't been back in seven years, so it's kind of looking forward to going back and seeing what it was like. And the beaches down south in Thailand are still the best beaches I've ever been to. They're incredible. Like the beaches along, not in the Gulf, because I actually haven't been to the Gulf too much, but on the other side, on the peninsula, um, there's a couple, there's sets of islands over there that are just insane. And do you have to access those on this trip? Yeah. Flew straight into uh, straight into Krabi and then took a boat out to the islands and stayed there for four or five days. Now I know we're on air, but I'm imagining that it's probably unlikely that the other four people on your trip, besides uh, your companion, um, will be listening. So I'd like at least a little bit of insight into some of the frustrations of traveling in a large group of six people. Uh, the worst thing about traveling in a large group is to go anywhere, we had six people with us, to go anywhere takes, you would think it would take just slightly longer than going somewhere with just another person, but it's basically multiplied by six. So it's six times, it takes six times as long to get ready to go to dinner as it does. I'm not even kidding, because we would get out, we would get out of the place, you know, out of our uh, hotel or, you know, we stayed at a house in Bali, but... Go outside, and it's like, oh, I forgot my ex. You know, I forgot my <laughs> wallet. It's like, all right, let's, the rest of the five of us will just wait here for you while you go get your wallet. So then the, wallet, the person that lost the wallet comes back out, and now the second person is like, oh, can I just grab my cell phone real quick? It's like, all right. <laughs> Seriously, like a half-hour process to get anywhere. <laughs> and everybody had their own opinion of what we should do and where we should eat. You know, the, I tend to just kind of go with the flow, so... It, uh, it started started getting pretty frustrating by the end of it. But yeah, that's the, that's the worst part about it. Did, did you guys always travel together? Pretty much. Pretty much. And I kept trying, I kept trying to, uh, I kept trying to like put forth the idea of like, we don't necessarily have to do everything together, but <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it ended up that we did everything together. I mean, the flip side of that is you're, the stuff that's really good, you're experiencing it with more people, so it's even that much better. So it's give and take. But well, yeah, that was a nice little hallmark. That was a nice, nice little hallmark moment for you, right there, huh? You're Just spinning it all together. I want to make sure that it wasn't all bad. No, I'm sure it wasn't. So, but I take pleasure from your your pain. But yeah, I'm, I'm nice and tan. I'm about as tan as you ever seen me. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I don't want to see you then. Yeah, I'm gonna come over tonight just to say hello. I'm getting, I'm wearing a white. White shirt just to try to gain some color on my face. Yeah. It's not working. I've got a wedding this weekend, so look nice and... Uh, oh, where's your wedding? Hand up for that. Uh, New Jersey. Oh, New Jersey. I, I know. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. 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 You're not going, huh? No, not going. Not going. Is that this weekend or next weekend? This Saturday. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I thought it was the 18th for some reason all happening so and i started my trip in vegas we didn't really talk about that but that did not go well at all yeah so basically we haven't seen each other or talked to each other since ncaa wrestling championships yeah and uh you did you took a lot of lumps so wrote the article right everything in the article turned out okay i think i went i think i split in the article of who i thought was going to win the one that the one that i wish i'd called and it seems so obvious right now quinn wright quinn wright Right? Doesn't it just seem so obvious now? 
Yeah, I mean, once you realize that what made Kilgore good was being the biggest bully in the room, what makes Quentin Wright good is that he's really good. Yeah. Yep. And the fact that he's just always there, you know, any, anytime there's, every time at Nationals, he's just at his best. Yeah. And I don't know. It seems seems really obvious. And he was a plus, I think he was at least a 2-1 to one underdog going in. Maybe plus 220, plus 250, something like that. Right. That would have been a nice bet. At least right. a nice bet to call, but yeah. I had Kilgore winning it going in. I wish wish I had called the other the other side of that one. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes we get into this situation where like, oh, he's been so dominant against all these opponents. He'll certainly dominate whoever he faces. And then you forget that there's this, this style matchup that comes into play too. You saw it keep happening with Kilgore where he would try to bully him and he would just get that – uh, Quinn would get that underhook and just yeah. He took that three times with that, didn't he? Yeah, the underhook pass by it was beautiful. But you forget that like there's a style matchup and maybe Kilgore was going to have. It, it makes sense now. You think about it, that Kilgore was going to have trouble with his length. Yep. Yeah, really athletic. I mean, and he, he looked big. Like I, I thought the the main thing, and I guess we should have realized this. You know, he had a whole season to get get prepared for the weight, but. I thought he was going to be a little undersized, and he wasn't at all. He looked—I mean, just as big as him. Right. Yeah, that was that was um, a big loss. On, Jordan Oliver. Um, I still feel all right about that one. Chamberlain had a chance. I think that's about a three to one is is what we called it, and that's where it ended up online. So I don't feel bad about calling Chamberlain to win that one. I mean. Oliver probably wins four out of five, but Chamberlain was in the match. He was in the match, except it looked like at the end that Oliver was just like, oh, I'm just going to wait until this point to get this takedown. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of action before that. Um, Oliver was kind of in a couple times before that. You know, Chamberlain played defense for the most part. He didn't really do a whole lot. If it came down to a ride out, you probably still favor Oliver. I don't think there's a whole lot of way Chamberlain wins that match without getting a takedown, but... No, I mean, he he would need, like, a really bad Oliver shot. And Oliver wasn't going to get underneath him. I mean, that's why he, yeah. he... The way he ended up scoring was obviously with that uh, shuck uh, snapdown. But yeah, he wasn't going to get underneath him. But let's talk about the one match that we all want to talk about still, because we haven't really dissected it, especially on the podcast, would be Dake and Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well... So Taylor comes out, gets the takedown right away. Kind of expected. Obviously, I mean, I, I called the takedown, but I mean, I think everyone sort of expected Taylor's aggression early. 15 seconds in. I mean, that's fast. That was fast, I thought. But it was almost too fast. Like, you could, I, I think I texted you right after that happened because you were gloating about how you called the takedown. And I was like, I'm still taking big. And you could tell, like, I don't know. It seemed like even though he got that takedown, it, it wasn't good for him at all. Well, it wasn't just that. It was he tried to ride him, which is fine. But, you know, when you try to ride a guy who's really fresh, you have to be careful because, they, they, you know, it, it's just a balance you have to keep. And he almost got reversed again on the edge of the mat. But more so, he kind of got manhandled again. And I could see, like, he had to deal with Dake's strength and explosiveness. He, he registered the fact that, like, dude, this guy's really strong. I forgot how strong he is. I forgot how fast he is. Because on the yep. edge of the mat, with that whole weird leg up in the air, look for the reversal. I mean, it, it was a it was a complete. I mean, actually, there was a little, there was some technique involved, but it was pretty much just a gooning uh, by Dake. Right. You know, he just straight gooned him, and yeah, I think Taylor maybe got a little timid after that. Oh, he definitely did. I think he got timid, but then also look back at he got ridden completely ridden out. Yep. But more disturbing was the fact that he got in on that beautiful low leg single to Dake's right leg, had his head in the knee, bent Dake's knee, was coming around to finish, and then basically Dake just said, I'm taking my leg back. <laughs> like, And Taylor didn't have a good answer for that. He didn't follow up. That defense, with, that defense I mean, one guy in the country could have pulled that off. The defense of that second shot. Right. That's, that's the thing. It's like, how does he not come into a situation where he can do better? Like... You're 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 a, you're a very big time wrestler. You should be able to follow up that shot with something that was a little bit more um, productive. Yeah. Well, they went out of bounds at that point too. Well, yeah. 
Yeah. The thing that was really surprising to me was um, the takedown that Dave got. It seemed like, I don't know, it just didn't seem like Taylor had his usual defense. Like, no. Any, anybody else in the country gets on a low single, I think we see Taylor defended and kind of funk out of it. Right. I don't know. I Maybe it was what Dake was doing offensively that, that kind of stopped that, but I, I thought Taylor would have had a little more of a, a fight there. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a classic finish, right? We've done all that finish before, and Dake right. didn't... Dake wasn't... I don't think Dake was out of his element. I think when he got into that position, he was so calm, and the way he shook him down, so easy, trapped the leg, but you're right. Like, Taylor didn't give that second scramble. Basically, he didn't, he, didn't, to, he didn't try to skank roll him or anything. He just kind of... He grabbed his foot a little bit. I mean, Dake did a good job, obviously, of hiding his feet, but, yeah, I thought I thought he was going to at least try to funk him out there a little bit. Right, right, right. And didn't happen. So then, whatever, goes to the second period. Dake, I mean, really, Dake, that was the only shot he took of the match. The only one he needed. And if you look back at all their matches, I mean, I think Dake has maybe two or three shots in all of them. Two or three meaningful shots. Yeah. Um, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't do a lot, but when he does, he scores it, right? Yep. Then rides him out, gets the riding time point. So then, end of the match, Taylor finally gets out. He's got about 20 seconds left. He, you know, finally starts going after him like you would normally see David Taylor go after a guy and gets in, gets a stalling call and a stalling point, which cost me that that stalling call with three seconds left. God, I mean, I don't know if I, I can throw a number out there, but it cost me some money. Oh, my God. It's so incredible. <laughs> cost me some money for sure and that's pretty much that pretty much sums up my weekend in Vegas that that happened 10 times different situations so stall call there cost me you know that's the difference between up and down quite a bit uh Ramos the Ramos non two point uh backs there oh man you really didn't bring that, that you think that was two I think it was two yeah you I think not. it was definitely two you really? know no, I think it would it would have been kind of a quick call. I mean, you have to call the takedown before you just start calling back points. He had the cradle locked up. No, he didn't. And oh, he he did, but that not at first. Like he needed to lock his hands. He got his hands locked. Got the the guy actually. If you look at the video, the guy gave the two really quickly, really quickly, and immediately started counting. It just he was only in that position. He went from like flat on his belly or like sort of scrambling to right on his back. Yeah. And he was only there for maybe two and a half seconds. So you say that one second for the takedown and then a second and then he, before he got the second call. I don't know. I, I thought it was a good call. It was close. It could have gone either way. I, I really thought they would have given him to him, especially in Iowa. But, but he, still, well, he still would have lost, right? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at it as the match is the same exact match, then, yeah, he still loses by one point. But... That changes the whole dynamic of the match. I mean, at that point, he just needs a takedown, whereas at the end of the match, he needed a takedown and backs. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's the argument is that he's still going to lose with those two points, but it also changes changes the whole match from that point on. Sure, Brian. Whatever makes you sleep at night, bud. Well, point of the story is a couple bad beats, but you live. You live to fight another day. I just, I just find it fascinating that our our gambling professional, not so much. <laughs> I had a great year. Let's let's not discount the year. Didn't yeah. end well, but you had a you know, great year. I had a great year. Great year. You sure? Mm-hmm. Talk to me honestly. Do you feel like you did a good job here at the end? As far as, as far as what? Did you do a good job winning when you needed to win? Um, yeah, well, first of all, I couldn't bet thanks to uh, an anonymous. I couldn't bet on Sportsbook until the finals. Actually, I couldn't bet on Sportsbook, period. So I couldn't, put, I couldn't lay down any bets. I would have bet on Mabel. We all know he won. Um, 
maybe would have been on Kilgore, which would have canceled <laughs> that out. But I think I would have made a few bets that, that would have come through. And then the final lines, it was different this Hold year. Hold on, but you, did, but you did make bets. I put some money on... I put some money against Jordan Oliver. The only pre... No, but you made bets on... You made online bets through people. No, just on the finals. Yeah. Yeah, but none of the none of the beforehand stuff. None of the big picture stuff. And you think you would have made money on the big picture stuff? Well, I think I definitely would have had Maple, for sure. For sure you would have? Yeah, read the article. <laughs> <laughs> read the article. Um... Other than that, the final lines, you know, he did every. All the lines were different than we're used to. So he did the finals instead of just doing like a point spread. He did well. What if Dake is favored by a point and a half? You know, and he gave you crazy odds to take Dake minus one and a half. So I did that, but there wasn't really a wasn't really a chance to take any money lines or anyone straight up. So. A little different, but yeah, I feel good about it. I mean, that stalling call at the end—if, if, again, if Dake doesn't get hit for stalling with three seconds left, which I think is ridiculous, because let's say Taylor finishes that last shot, now he wins the match. You know, don't stall. I don't know. There's some strategy involved there. But do you think he's ever going to finish that last shot? Three seconds to go. He wasn't that far away. Wasn't that far away from it? True, true, true. So, you got to look at the big picture. You can't just take a snapshot of one day. You know, it's a career. (laughs) (laughs) How did you fare? You you did all right. Yeah, I did okay. I didn't win a ton of money. I mean, I think I made... I think I... I don't know anyone that won bets on the final. Because all all the tempting bets, like Ramos... Plus two and a half. I think everybody took that that I know. Yeah, and I think I think at the end of the day, when I calculate my bets going in, my prop bets with you, um, and the finals bets, I think I ended up up seventy dollars after risking somewhere in the neighborhood of like four grand. I think I ended up up seventy bucks, but then I ended up having to pay back sportsbook, so I ended up losing one hundred and thirty bucks. Yeah. I figure I'm still paying off Sportsbook with uh, Steve Bozak bet from last year. So yeah, I actually I had money in my account and I was sitting around and I I bet a, the Virginia Iowa NIT basketball. Game. <laughs> I was sitting there. I was like I was like oh the point total is whatever 198 or 100 and some odd points. I'm like it'll be less and I just put like you know whatever it was and. <laughs> I made fifty bucks, and I was like, "This is how they get you." Because now you have this big money on there, and you're just yeah, kind of now bored. it's on there. What are you going to do with it? You're going to take off fifty bucks? No, you're going to you're going to keep it going. Exactly. Betting is dangerous. So I, Gambling is I'm a disease, there, people. I lost money. I lost money on blackjack. I lost money on poker. I lost money on roulette. And I lost money on wrestling. So if I can't win money on wrestling, where am I going to win money? So. Just at the end, I threw just a flyer bet on basketball, thinking maybe my luck would turn, and just lost huge. Just lost my money. Oh, so I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about this, although I hope you do. From March 19th to April 7th, when you returned home, mm-hmm. the amount of money that is no longer in your bank account. I'm not going to get into uh, specifics for sure. Just because my mom probably listens and it would scare her. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy right now. Um, I think that's called schadenfreude, but I'm sorry, man. That's that's tough go for you. Uh, What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Win something, lose something. I mean, like I said, last year... Last year, I won money on Bozak, which was huge. I won money on Logan Stever, which was huge. So, paying, paying you with your money. Yeah. So, so what, 
so what you know sort of we're just gonna kind of freestyle here keep going i just kind of want to see what your uh what's your impression of the of the developments thus far with the uh the ioc what what have you so you you're just you're a wrestling fan you're scanning facebook what what do you know that is happening and what is what is how are you being engaged uh i've been out of the the whole game for a little while i haven't really had internet access but um I don't know. Trying to keep up with the articles. A lot of it is pointing towards uh, Novakratz and what he's been doing. Um, as far as like Facebook, social networks, and you know, every wrestling-related personality is is posting stuff every day. Just, you know, letting people be aware that the the fight is still being fought. So, do you think uh, there's like, do you think there's a fatigue? No, not really. I just don't think everyone knows, like, all right, here's step one, here's step two. This is where we're going. This is, like, the date that's, you know, a lot of people that follow it closely know the dates. I certainly don't. But um, there's not a whole lot of direction, I don't think. doesn't seem like, uh, at least by the general public. Just people know it's still going on. I think Nationals is probably the best thing, you know, the timing of Nationals and, and Dig doing what he did probably the best thing that that could have happened to it so far you know and then you take that that press and try to spin it you know towards let's get wrestling back in the Olympics so yeah but I mean I think everybody walked out of that I think a lot of people walked out of the NCAAs and was like well what happened why didn't we see anything why didn't we why wasn't there a bigger push made I mean obviously Robles was on the announcing booth and was able to get some some notes in there, and then they interviewed Bubba Jenkins. But, you know, that's interviewing a professional fighter and a guy who doesn't wrestle anymore. And I'm not saying that there had to be more done, but I think a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but I I do feel like there was some number of people who were just kind of wondering what the hell just happened. Why was there not more outreach? Like, what do we do? You know, like you said. I mean, that's the question. what, What do you do? Exactly. So what what are we trying to do? In some ways, we're being told that there is nothing that we can do because it's basically the IOC and it's going to come down to a couple of lobbyists and and whatever. And then on the other side, we're being told to sign up at keepwrestlingintheolympics.com, pay a buck or two, and be part of the movement. But I think a lot of people are confused that you know there was a press release that mentioned where the money was going, but I think a lot of people don't know what that means. Like when they say $800,000 for PR – well, what does that translate to? And the answer is it translates into stories on, you know, azcentral.com about Cejudo, or it translates into a Vanity Fair article about Baldwin. So then the question becomes, is that going to get wrestling back in the Olympics? Right. Yeah, I think there's not a whole lot of uh, clarity of, like, where the money's going and, and where it needs to go, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's interesting. Today the, we, we found out that the Iranians are going to come to America. They're leaving on the 11th. They get here on the uh, – oh, boy. They wrestle on the 16th. So, you know, that's, you know, that's obviously a big, big opportunity uh, to create a ton of fanfare, ton of press. I mean, that's going to be a bunch of press, but, you know – Wait, you is could, that uh, – so where is that? Is that back in New York? Yeah. Grand Central Station. Yeah, so that's huge. That's huge. But how do you take the how do you take the hype and the press around it and turn it into something positive to get the IOC to make a, a decision in our way? Right. So, what do you react to more? Do you react to factual evidence or do you react to emotion? What's the, the answer? Is emotion. You an, you answer to emotion, and. Yeah. You know, I think it's a great event. I think it's going to raise interest. It might raise some money and it might meet some people. But I'm not seeing quite where there's emotion attached. I think, you know, some people are already offering the idea. One of them's it's a good idea in, in some ways because you want to sell it to the public. But they're like, we got to make sure we make it like us versus the Iranians, like it was us versus the Russians in the 80s and all this other stuff. And we got to make it, we got to hype it, us versus them, good versus evil. And, all, you know, I think. Maybe that's a little misguided because really what we want to do is show unity and strength and 
brotherhood and camaraderie and how wrestling can instill these values in you that you can perform nonviolent conflict resolution and be, you know, be friends and basically, sure. you know, that, that this is a huge yeah, event. Yeah, on one hand, you're trying, to, you're trying to promote it and get as much volume as you can, but on the other hand, you're still trying to show the merits of wrestling overall. Yeah, you know, you don't want to have conflicting... Yeah, conflicting ideas there. You don't want to sell it so much to where everyone's screaming like "USA, get the hell out of here, bro!" <laughs> you know, like it's already in New York, New Jersey. It's a scary, hyper-masculine crowd. You know, what what are we? So, what are we trying to do? And and I think something that I've told you before, and something I've written about, is like we don't have. We need more long-form stories. We need more people who are willing to tell the story of wrestling. And there's a big piece coming out um, on ESPN in May about Gable and that's going to be good. You know, I think that's going to be a nice, I think it's going to be in the area of like eight to 10,000 words by a guy named Wright Thompson at ESPN who's a brilliant writer. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be incredible. But in the meantime, you know, that's one long form story that's going to hit like right before the May decision. But does the international, now we're going to connect with that. We're going to create interest around that. That's going to do something for us. But does that do anything to affect the decisions of the IOC? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the IOC has come out now and, and made a couple responses or at least at least had to, like, voice to defend their, their side, which is good, I think. At least they know that, you know, the outrage is, is pretty big. I don't know if they've ever had to do that before with another sport they cut. I mean, there's definitely pushback against baseball and softball when they, those were cut, but at the same time, those were due to lack of interest. I mean, that was that's a pretty major blow, you know, when someone's just like, look, not a lot of people play baseball. I mean, a couple of Asian countries, some Latin American places, but on the whole, there's not a lot of good competition. People aren't watching. It's extraordinarily expensive, you know, yeah. and they're trying to reapply and stuff, but I think, you know, look, maybe I'm wrong. And I've, this is not the first time that I would be wrong, but I still, I still feel, and I'm just going to keep hammering this point to anybody who listen. It's, it's about women, it's about ethnic minorities, and it's about the underprivileged in countries outside of America, out, countries outside of North America, and outside of Europe. That's who we should be focusing on: religious, ethnic minorities, women, and the underprivileged who have been able to use wrestling or who could use wrestling in the future to improve their social standing and earn attain equal rights in their communities you know and i think there's so many beautiful examples of that from around the world that if there's good storytelling to tell those if there's good storytelling behind those individuals and the lives that they lived that you can create real and positive change in the IOC's mind the IOC will now start seeing it as an emotional issue more importantly, the people that surround the IOC will see it. Do as they a, care? Do they care about the emotions of it, or do they? Yeah, care I think about that's. I think uh, price tag. Well, sure, but like maybe there's a price tag to it. Maybe they, you know, that's all, that's going to go on regardless, right? So this is not impeding that, right? This is just assisting it. And what I'm saying is, it makes the it makes the pill of forgiveness. It makes the pill of we screwed up a little easier when you have individuals in your community who say to you. You know, there's, IOC members have friends, right? I'm assuming. We all have friends. And their friends right now are giving them some amount of grief about this decision because they're hearing about it, right? Now, that probably stopped since, you know, it's been a little bit of time. It's been 60 days almost. It's been 57 days. So maybe they're not hearing about it as consistently from their peer group. But once someone in their peer group reads a story about the 14-year-old girl who is avoiding bus rapes in Delhi by learning how to wrestle and then she's bringing her family out of poverty and giving them honor and earning a job. Now, now all of a sudden that friend is going to read that story in the international press and is going to forward it to them or talk to them about it, you know, and now you can put a face to who is losing out on the opportunities around the world. The IOC members have as a face, there's peer pressure and look, maybe it doesn't make a difference in the mind of everybody, but if it makes them, if it makes up the mind of 25 voters, even then you've made your job a lot easier. You know, you've, you've reduced the risk. You've increased your chances. And right now, I just think we're stuck in a rut, and people aren't making those decisions. They aren't attacking those angles. I think the one thing that has that hasn't happened is at least 
people haven't forgotten about it, you know? It seems like it's still pretty fresh in everyone's mind, and the, the people, the right people that need to be fighting the battle are, are fighting it. No, I mean, there's always there's always a differing opinion even on something like that, but I think I agree Just that... How much, of the, how much of the decision is, at this point, they've already gone through phase one to save face of not, you know, overturning their decision. That's my only worry, is that they won't overturn it just because they don't want to look bad. And that's the thing. I think our, our first opportunity to see where we stand is in May when we say, okay, this is... This is what's going on, guys. Here's our emotional, you know, maybe we try to make an emotional appeal to them, but this is the point where we say, like, this is where we gauge what, the, you know, what they what they feel about the changes that we've made. Because remember, a lot of this, too, is the IOC got away with pushing back against us. So when everybody started making this emotional outpouring right after when people were returning their medals and people were naysaying, the IOC yeah. reached out to us and was like, and Fila and was like, you have to stop this. You're never going to get back in if people keep talking negatively about us. So we told everybody to stop printing stories about anything that had anything negative to say about the IOC. So now the black eye went away, you know, and that was because they didn't want to deal. They didn't want to deal with that pressure, and because you know we listened because they said that you know, hey, you keep being mean to us, we're not gonna. We're not going to buy you lunch. So then the other thing that happened was unintentionally what we've done now is we've put the onus back on ourselves to make changes. And now it's all about how we've screwed up, how we didn't provide enough opportunities for women, how we had a sport that was boring and unwilling to change, which while true, shouldn't be the PR message. The PR message should still be we're reducing the opportunities for women and minorities around the world to bring themselves out of poverty. I mean, I just don't. You know, I think that's the Olympic message. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think uh, we've at least shown that wrestling is far-reaching. You know, it's it's not a sport that's confined to even ten countries. You know, as as most of the sports are. Yeah, the twenty-six countries. Everybody's everybody's got a a representative for the most part. You know, it's, some of the numbers that came out or show that wrestling is. You know, it belongs. It's one of the core sports of the Olympics from from the get go. So I think it'd be cool. I think maybe the solution where everyone saves face and it all works out is you just take judo instead of making judo a sport. You just make it grappling, and you make judo one of the disciplines or one of the events, and wrestling is an event, and you just keep working down from that one core sport. You know, like the idea that judo would be a sport, but that wrestling isn't. Right. Is one of the more offensive places because judo is wrestling. It's just it. I know people don't think of it that way, but it is. It's it's all it's a grappling art. You're grabbing another human. There's no, you know, there's no difference. Maybe there's yeah. a difference in outfit, but it's the same sport um, in so many ways. So I, I just you know I just think it's foolish that they made these. Well, types to of package decisions. it up that way, then then judo would have to kind of they would have to kind of say that all right, we're gonna fight this battle with wrestling at this point which why would they no but I mean like but no I mean I'm just saying like the IOC can save face they can do whatever they want you know they can just come in and say all right, we think wrestling should stay and we don't know that we want to necessarily restrict everyone else's access so maybe in the main meetings they say like we're recommending that you know wrestling get put in as an event underneath judo now that might not be something that's even possible but I think when you deal with an independent board of 15 people who have shown that they're pretty much outside of um, laws, <laughs> you know, so there's nobody to, that they have to answer to, then why wouldn't they be able to do that, you know? There's no yeah. parliament. It's not we're dealing – we're not dealing with parliamentary procedure. They're not following Robert's rules of parliamentary procedure. These are just people that are formed together and they'll make people t- – at the, at the August or at the September vote, if they – if people don't vote – it's not you don't vote yes or no for the recommendations to cut wrestling and have 25 core sports. You don't vote yes or no. It's either yes or abstain. And then so basically there's 114 members. Once they get to 58 yeses, they win, right? So if if say 70 people abstain and they can't get to that number, Roger doesn't give up. He just calls another vote immediately. And if he doesn't get it, he just calls another vote immediately. 
So it is going to pass at some point. He's not going to let it not pass. And where, when is that? That is in September. September. But to even be recommended, we would need to be a provisional sport, which is happening in May. And that's in Russian May, right? Yeah. Are you still planning on going out? I'd like to. I'd like to have at that point made a, a couple of trips to a couple of different places. Um, uh, my Iranian visa is being processed currently. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's gonna, I'm going to get it. I had to fill out a journalist visa, so I don't know if I'm going to get it. But if I do, then I'm going to go there as a member of Wrestling Roots. And, I mean, I'm obviously, as a journalist, working with different magazines on some different story ideas. But I think, you know, as much as I complain about stuff, I think between the Wrestling Roots Foundation and I have the access to do things. I just don't. I want to make sure that I have people behind me who can work on distribution, you know. So. you got to think that the, the Russian vote is going to have a pretty good turnout. From, uh, it's the same weekend in the same city as Russian Nationals. Are you serious? Yeah. That is incredible. Isn't that incredible? Oh, man. That, that is a, a trip worth taking for sure. It, it seems like it's almost like a can't miss kind of thing. Like, we need to go because it would be an incredible experience wow. just to watch that unfold. So didn't the, didn't the Russian Nationals, wasn't there a riot last year just on like a blown call? Yeah, no, it was, well, it was a, it was a total work. It was a total job. It was, it was the Satyev kind of. Yeah, Satyev, uh, the guy, it was, they wanted Sargush against Satyev in the finals. Sargush basically yeah, so lost. no matter what happened, they were going to slide him. In there. there was a huge banners all around the city. And then Sargush, I'm sorry, Satyev lost in the, basically lost in the semis, but they didn't give the call. And then, uh, how do you say it, Butarev? Butarev? He got uh-huh. he got into a fist fight with a bunch of Chechens. Right. Or not Chechens, Dagestanis. So, you can see some pissed off people there. Um, but then that's the thing is they don't want that either because... No, that's not what you want at all. But I don't know. I'm just wondering what the, the next step is to... It just seems like too delicate a situation, of a situation to... You know, like there's some good movement behind it. Obviously a big outrage, but... How do you transition that into something that's going to be, um, you know, effective at changing any anyone's mind that counts? That's what I'm saying. I, I just think there needs to be, yeah, there needs to be a little bit more uh, the emotional appeal. Not emotions, not like rage. What do you think they should have done? You think they should have just handed take the mic afterwards and then like, all right, tell us why. At NCAAs, there was, I mean, there's a lot of creative people, I think, that aren't having their voices met. I think a lot of the, you know, the way the structure works in in the organization right now is they're going out to outside PR firms, you know, and PR firms are working the angles they're traditionally used to working. And this is a completely unique angle. I mean, if you ask people inside the, you know, if you ask young creative people how they would solve this problem, I think it would be a totally different conversation than what you're going to probably get from, as we discussed, like what we're going to get at in Grand Central, which is we're going to get a couple of one-day news stories, radio, television appearances. You know, you're going to have the preview articles that are going to come out the two days before. You're going to get the event articles that come out the day after, and you're going to – that's it. And, you know, there's going to be maybe one more, but that'll probably be it. You know, they're going to get shared on Facebook for two or three days, and then it'll be the next thing. And then, well, I think actually they're going to go to L.A. There'll be a significant drop-off once it gets to L.A. on coverage. You know, it'll be more regional-based coverage. It'll be West Coast coverage. And then it'll just be old hat, you know. It'll just be something that happened in May, and then it doesn't matter anymore. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah. No, definitely. And that's what I'm saying. It's good at least that that hasn't happened yet. You know? I mean, I think that happens with everything we've done. I mean, I think with NCAAs even, like, there was only like a one-day – it's an event. It's a one-day news story. It's a two-day news story. And mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of things in the works that are going to come out in May, right before Russia Nationals. We have one thing in the works, I think. And then what about all the stuff that you need to be doing to put in, like, big-time projects that could come out in September right before that? I get a question. So let's say let's say it gets past um, everything it needs to get past, you know, this cycle to not be put in. Do they have a chance in 
2016 or 2017 to put it back in his uh, provisional? I think they have an opportunity immediately in 2014 to get it put back in, in, in a way. Because there's going to be a new president in 2014. Mm-hmm. So Roger has his 25-core sports idea, which will get passed. Wrestling may or may not be put in as a provisional sport. But the next year, in 2014, if, say, like nothing happened, you know, like we screwed up, they could still – you know how they're, they're thinking about adding events to 2016 Olympics right now? Yep. They're thinking about adding BMX. They're thinking about adding s- swimming events, and they're thinking about adding um, – and they're thinking about adding uh, – which one called events? Uh, basketball. They're adding three-on-three basketball. The thing about adding all these things, so what we talked about with judo could happen. You know, maybe they'll reconstitute in 2014, 2015, they'll add, I'm sorry, yeah, in 2015, they'll add events for the 2020 games. You know, they'll reconstitute everything works. Or maybe it happens in 2015. What about, what about jiu-jitsu? BJJ? I don't think so. I mean, I, I just think it's it would be a worse battle than you're fighting with wrestling because they just see two people rolling around on the ground and then suddenly someone passes out. But I think I, that, I just wonder if in Brazil they would have any, any would, sort of the IBJJF wouldn't deal with it. They wouldn't. They didn't submit a, a proposal because hmm. <laughs> they don't want to give up the the power and the money that they have currently around the world. So if you were to make a bet, if you were to bet right now whether or not wrestling is in 2020, not the popular answer, but your personal uh, personal feeling, what would you say? I'm 100 percent fifty fifty. You're 100% 50-50. I don't have, like, an inkling either way. Maybe, you know what? I would say 40-60. 40% chance it gets in. That it gets in? Yeah. And I think it's less than that when you start thinking of traditional means. I think it'll be something else. I think it'll be, like, a secondary or tertiary yeah. idea. It seems like the odds of it getting back to a core sport are, are pretty slim. Yeah. At least this one. And then I think it's interesting too because we can we can segue this right into Boston University dropping their program. Yeah. Because it's the same thinking. Yeah. So how much of a how much of an impact you know did that have on on BU saying all right well we're done. I talked to the AD and I'm asking the question and he said it didn't. He said like everyone else who were shocked, but I don't think it really reflects on us. Who knows? I mean, it's obviously not a good thing. I mean, it's not like it's a – I mean, it has an effect. But I think more importantly, like the same thing that happened at Fila with Rafi Martinetti is the same thing that happened at Boston, which could have been the same thing that happened at any number of programs, right, where you have individuals in place who aren't being challenged. Right. And there's complacency. And there's this idea that nothing I do – can or, or don't achieve is really going to jeopardize my position, you know, and and even once he's gone, like people will defend Rafi Martinetti, people will defend Carl Adams. Like I understand Carl Adams was a, a, had an, a positive effect on people's lives, and I've had plenty of outrage about the mailbag that I wrote last week, saying that like, look, this should have happened a long time ago. Carl Adams wasn't winning, and he had nine point nine scholarships. And he wasn't running a Division One program. And if he had been replaced a while ago, there would have been incredible opportunity. There would have been a ton of individuals who would have reached out to that position for that position. A ton of really qualified coaches. Yeah, I gotta kind of agree with you. I, I actually almost went to Boston University. I don't know if you knew that about me. I did. Um, yeah, it just seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of hype around the program. Not a whole lot of. Uh, awareness you know you, there was a I think two years ago one of the guys their 25 pounder upset Nickerson and that was really like the only thing you heard about it to have for them to have 9.9 scholarships there should have been much more noise going yeah on and there. then immediately every you know all the contacts have been like oh well you know there's not they have a really small room they have no alumni support I'm like all that stuff's fixed by the coach. The coach is the CEO of the program. He needs to go out there. And I think that's a model that a lot of coaches today accept. But I just, to be honest with you, you can't hold a job for 32 years. And, and I mean, you can, I guess. And if you stay fresh, you stay fresh. But if you're not staying fresh and up with the times, then you're going to suffer. You know, I mean. Well, wrestlers are a loyal bunch. So you're not going to get a whole lot of guys like, 
you know, it's happened a little bit, but you're not going to get a whole lot of guys coming out and bad-mouthing a guy, I mean, who was a great wrestler and had been at the helm of that program for 30, what was it, 32 years. But, you know, maybe it needs to happen. Maybe that's exactly what does need to happen is that you need people to come out and be like, all right, what is going on there? you got a major university with 10, you know, fully funded basically that isn't aware that they're about to be cut. You know, That was the shocking part. I had no idea. It's like, wait, you had no idea? I mean, you've been, you know, if they're not improving your facilities, you need to take a look around and be like, wait, you know, it, it's like, um, you've got to be at least in contact with the administration and, and keep checks on in this day and age, wrestling, you know, wrestling programs being cut every year. There's two or three that go by the wayside. So if you're sitting at the table and you can't, that it's a, it's a possibility. If you're sitting at the table and you can't point the sucker, point out the sucker at the table, <laughs> guess what? You're the sucker. And, yeah, it's it's really just going to be one of those ideas of... Yeah, and Carl Adams is a great guy, I'm sure, and great wrestler, but, yeah. Wrestling can't... The thing is, wrestling hasn't adopted. Is it, We've been losing programs at, like, such a clip, and now we have the answer. We, we understand how to do it, you know? We got it. We know the formula. Alumni donation, uh, fan raising, um, social media, networking... Um, the, the coach CEO, that model been proven again and again. Now it's about making sure that the holding these coaches accountable for doing it. And if you think for one second that Randy Stottlemyre at Pittsburgh wasn't a direct result of the That's alumni. Exactly what I thought. As soon as I saw that story, that's the first thought I had. Stottlemyre is 48 times more successful. Or no, probably 30 times more successful as a coach than Carl Adams. Mm-hmm. He's done everything right, but, you know, he's been coaching for 35 years. And he's done a great job with that program over time. But, you know, he was trending downwards. And, okay, so let's get the guy in there. Jason Peters, everybody loves the guy. Young guy, youngish, CEO, loyal He's our guy. And they knew he was going to be the guy. They put they made him head coach in waiting a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's obvious that the alum called up the AD and said, we just saw what happened. We're interested in making a change. We want to make positive change. We want to keep moving forward. That has to be. I mean, that, this is the season. I know it's, it's tis the season. But they made the, they made the right call at the right time. There's a couple more schools. Sure, there's always a couple more schools that can make those those changes, you know, and I think it's a matter of, of finding them and being able to call them out. Yeah. Um, so what is the process, though? I mean, how do you how do you do that without pissing some people off? I mean, that's me. I mean, I, that's my job in the media. That's that's uh, Jason Bryant's job. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You know, I think my problem, maybe not me, but maybe the problem is... It, it comes down to, you know, program by program. Like, what's important to one program might not be necessarily important to another. Or, like, the priorities might be shifted a little bit. So, like, small schools, maybe you get a few fans in there. You don't necessarily have to win. But I think a uh, school like Boston University, you got to show some wins. you got to show some success. They're not in a huge conference, so they have the ability to get, you know, get some guys to nationals. And I don't know what their numbers were this year, but I'm sure you do. If the which one? I don't know how many guys they brought to nationals this year. Three. Three guys. So. Never. You know, they brought three guys. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if we want to keep speaking plainly, this is exactly what was going on in Virginia right before you know Lenny left. I mean, we, we, we know, we've seen it firsthand. It's not like this is a surprise. You right. know, Lenny was tracking, trending downwards, and the administration was pouring money in. We had a lot of great alumni support. A lot of it was because of him. He did great things to build the room. He did all the CEO stuff, and then it became a matter of, all right, we got to win too, and that wasn't happening at the clip that he liked, and the conference was getting better, and he made a decision that it was time for himself, that he wanted to go do other stuff, and he saw the writing on the wall, and... Dude is happy as a pig in shit right now. Can't 
I mean, we we both love Lenny, and you know, you can't look at his life and be like on Facebook or whatever and be like, man, he made a bad choice. I mean, that guy is all smiles. You know, he's raising his family. Yeah, sure. He's hanging out with his best friend. I mean, that's the life you want to live. I mean, in some ways, like, I think there's coaches out there, just like there's people who are employed at certain jobs who would love to be fired or who would benefit from stepping down. You know, there's coaches out there. There's enough young guys out there that, I mean, I I actually thought Sean Gray was at Boston University. He was for a while, but then he left. It seemed like he was doing a good job. I mean, I thought so, too. He had some uh, some buzz around the program, you know, for a year or two. Well, that was the thing. They didn't have assist- They didn't have money for assistant coaches. They didn't have money for um, facil- to improve facilities. Mm-hmm. And that became, like, everyone's battle cry when after it happened. It was like – and then the other one, which is really annoying, and I'm sorry for anybody who wrote me and said this, but if anybody wrote me and said that they graduated 100% of the wrestlers, I don't know how little I could care about that. You're supposed to graduate from college. You know, and it's not like we, and by the way, it's not like we have an epidemic of schools who don't graduate their wrestlers. This isn't basketball. You know, every program out there is graduating somewhere between 95 and 100% of the wrestlers. That's fine. If you want to talk about your academic standing, I get your point, you know, but Boston wasn't in the top 30 for the last five years in academic standing. So I don't mean to sit here and, you know, you don't want to grave stomp, and it's a fine line, but I think it's frustrating for people who love wrestling to see another program dropped when there was money and opportunity available and it wasn't seized. Like, we, like to finish up with the point about firing people, like, that's the old Jack Welch GE model. The, the bottom 10% should be called. You should get rid of them, you know? And in wrestling, that might mean seven to eight coaches a year. Let's call it four. Let's call it 5%. But there's four coaches every year, every other year. Who could use it? Who could use the change? You know. I agree. I agree. And even if it's like you said, even if it's not being dismissed from the program, at least put it in a different role. You know, like a CEO role, and then you got you got a CEO, and then you have a head coach. Yeah, at least guys who can make the change. Like, look, there, we we don't need to put any more pressure on Joe McFarlane at Michigan, right? They had no All Americans, right? Mm-hmm. If he doesn't, uh, did Massa? I think Massa might have, or no. No, I don't think he did. Okay. I, you have no All-Americans. You had a bad year, okay? There's no more pressure that needs to be put on that guy, right? Like, they're not going to drop the program. They have a freestanding facility. He's got every possible accruement that he could ever want, right? Mm-hmm. And he's got to get the job done, you know? He, he's just got to get the job done. So, yep. yeah, we can call him out. He's a have who probably should be called out. But there's also the have-nots. Like, that's... Who, it's a weird structure for wrestling because our media actually needs to turn on to and attack the have-nots. The people like VMI or the people, you know, who have a program but haven't really produced. You know, they don't have everything that all the other programs have. But those are the people we need to draw attention to so that we can get interest built in their programs. And if the coaches need to be changed, and I'm not saying Trudgeon does, then we need, you know, that's the that's the teams we need to be talking about. Not yep. – Michigan and Michigan State. They're not Michigan State's not going to drop their wrestling program. I just said that, and they're going to do it now. Watch, but Michigan State's not going to drop the wrestling program. They like Minkle for whatever reason. I think you know there's, there's a handful of, of programs that you're not surprised to hear them being dropped. Boston University is was no not surprising, not at all. Not and for at the all. coach to say surprised. I, I get he's got to kind of say that, but I don't know. There had to be some warning signs. Yeah, there's the fact there's that they the fact that they built a thirty million dollar athletic that can, you know, ahead of the time be proactive about it and donate some money to to get some, some better facilities there. I mean, yeah, that's that's part of the job. Part of the job is you got to get get some. Uh, How about the fact you donated energy surrounding the program? There was a thirty million dollar facility built on campus. And they have a small wrestling room, and they didn't get any room or new allotment on campus for a new area. Warning bells should have been right. ringing. It's a red flag. Huge red flag. When I was at Columbia, they were talking about they, they built this big athletic facility, and there was tons of talk about how are we going to expand the room? What are we going to do? Can we add it up here? Do you guys want to stay down here? If we stay down here, is there somewhere you want to move? You know, 
you know, they were engaged in the process. And it's obvious that they, they just, I don't know. And it's frustrating because that's a lot. That's 10 less scholarships. That's, that's 40. You can think of that as 400 less wrestlers or 4,000 less wrestlers who are going to be able to seek out that opportunity to go to college. Not that, you know, I know it's only 10 more guys or 20 more guys who get to go, but it's this whole aspirations, you know, we haven't, we aspire to go to college and wrestle. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, uh, if the same sort of thing happens that happened with Arizona state, and they get reinstated somehow. They said no amount of money is going to bring them back. Really? Yeah. Yikes. You know, I think part of the problem is, you know, you know what's shocking to me is that Oregon hasn't found a way to come back yet. If I hear any more, every time I see something about their uniforms or something, it's like, this is this has nothing to do. It, that's the other thing too. It's like, well, if you're really in the really Oregon is a front for Nike to sell gear, right? So why doesn't Nike just you know go out there and put out a wrestling team and add some women? Like the PR for that would be huge. It, that would sell. That would make your money back. You know. The cost of two football uniform changes could probably fund the wrestling program for a year. Yeah, and it was a good wrestling program. Yeah, Webster. What's his name? Shane, Shane Webster. Shane Webster. Wrestled him. Did you? Yeah. How'd you do? I got in on like 15 shots. Couldn't finish any of them. All right. Enough. How many shots did he get in on? Enough to win. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we just crested the one-hour mark, and you know it's been a it's, it's been a good well, one. I gotta get back and uh, adjust my sleeping patterns a little more. Still, I'm still a little off, but finally starting to get back at it. Well, what are you doing tonight? We grab beers this week. Uh, yeah, I gotta leave Thursday for the wedding, but uh, maybe later tonight or tomorrow, grab a brewski. You can find me on my cell phone. I'll tell you all the things I couldn't tell you on air. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. All right. Bye. Bye. town and hide and you be the captain and I'll be no one and you can carry me away if you want to and you can lay low just like your father and if I tread upon your feet you just say so cause you're the captain Say so.
Yeah. 